Good evening. Russia continues its invasion of the sovereign nation of Ukraine. President Biden finally bans Russian oil, followed by a tone-deaf trip through Texas oil country. And a bill aimed at protecting children in Florida is decried as bigotry by the professional left. It's March 9th, 2022. All this and more. I'm Michael Coyne, and you're listening to Liberty Caller. today with an update on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the international community's response. Two batteries of American Patriot missiles have now been deployed to Poland, according to U.S. European Command, or UCOM. This on the heels of 7,000 additional American troops deploying to Europe in what's being called a proactive defensive action. According to UCOM spokeswoman Captain Christina Judd, quote, This defensive deployment is being conducted proactively to counter any potential threat to U.S. and allied forces and NATO territory, end quote. At Liberty Caller, we pray that Russia's movements cease, everyone returns to their corners, and Russian aggression on Ukraine and other neighboring countries moves back off the table. In a related story, Russian National Guard Lieutenant Colonel Astakov Dmitry Mikhailovich is in the news this week after having been captured by the Ukrainian military during Russia's onslaught into the sovereign nation of Ukraine. When the siege of Ukraine started, various American media outlets reported that Russians were being told that Ukraine had been overtaken by Nazis. Yes, you heard that right. Nazis. You see, the people of Russia still feel wounds and stings, not just from the Cold War, but from World War II, with a large percentage of the population viewing Lenin's communists as saviors from Hitler's invading Nazi regime. Colonel Mikhailovich is unlikely to be welcomed back into his homeland, I fear, as he has become an antidote of sorts to the Russian propaganda being fed to their soldiers and citizenry. Mikhailovich has confirmed the fairy tales of a fascist Ukraine being told by the government of Vladimir Putin. He has used the truth to turn Russian narrative on its head, declaring that the Russians are executing what Mikhailovich is calling a, quote, genocide. It's a playbook that must look very familiar to consumers of American news. In a page taken straight from Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, Putin is engaging in misdirection by accusing his opponents of what he's actually doing. Perhaps if the American political class could take a lesson. If you're operating from the same playbook as Vladimir Putin, it's time to turn down the temperature of the debate. President Joe Biden announced Tuesday that in response to Russia's military invasion of Ukraine, the United States would prohibit all sale and purchase of Russian oil and natural gas. This action comes nearly 13 days after the beginning of Russia's action in Ukraine on February 24th. Certainly, the United States should not be buying oil from a country as volatile as Vladimir Putin's Russia. But the American people and the international community have a right to know why it took nearly two weeks for President Biden's government to take this predictable and obviously necessary action. The simple truth is that the president is late to the party. Our government was quick to enact toothless sanctions against Vladimir Putin's personal finances, rendered meaningless because his money is sheltered like that of an international mafia don. Our government has even deployed American soldiers as part of NATO, a NATO force tasked with humanitarian aid in Ukraine. But the oil? What's the rush? 
Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that the United States imported from Russia 209,000 barrels of crude oil and 500,000 barrels of other petroleum products per day in 2021. This according to the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers Association. Now, while this accounts for less than 3% of total U.S. crude oil imports, it still represents a problem for the Biden administration. Upon taking office, this administration utterly hamstrung domestic oil and energy production, shutting down projects like the Keystone XL pipeline and other functional and planned American oil initiatives, including those in Texas. When President Trump left office in January 2021, gas prices in the U.S. averaged just over $2.30 per gallon. This is a national average. After just one year in office, gas prices under President Biden had risen by nearly a dollar to approximately $3.30 per gallon. That was January of this year. Today, less than two months later, the national average price for a gallon of gas has risen nearly by another whole dollar to $4.22. These figures from GasBuddy.com. Tuesday evening, President Biden held a town hall in Fort Worth, Texas, but failed to address the oil-shaped elephant in the room. Texas Congressman Dan Crenshaw had this to say via Twitter. Joe Biden is in Texas today, and yet he won't be meeting with energy producers to find out what's needed to increase production, reduce prices, and reduce dependence on foreign oil. This White House would rather meet with Venezuela and Iran instead. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki recently attempted clumsily to shut down questions tying projects like the Keystone XL to the price of gas by pointing out, quote, the Keystone was not an oil field, it's a pipeline. Also, the oil is continuing to flow in just through other means. So it actually would have nothing to do with the current supply imbalance, end quote. Now, anyone with even a passing understanding of economics or markets would see Saki's comments for the ludicrous misdirection that they are. Oil prices, much like stock prices or precious metals prices, are speculative. That means that if I own two barrels of oil, but I expect to get no more oil for a very long time, those two barrels have an extremely high value. Supply will not meet demand. However, if I have that same two barrels of oil today and I can securely expect 100 more barrels to arrive tomorrow and 100 more the next day, and so on, those two barrels that I have currently can be sold for a much lower price because I expect supply to meet or outpace demand. Put another way, if the United States has more ways to drill for and transport oil domestically, Americans will feel less pain at the pump, plain and simple. So even assuming that cutting Russian oil out of America's supply only represents a 3% drop in our imports, this will be felt much more heavily because of our now outsized dependence on all foreign oil, not just Russian. Earlier this week, the Biden administration raised eyebrows by approaching the brutal socialist dictatorship of Venezuela about the possibility of buying more oil from them, likely to make up the difference for the anticipated loss of Russian oil imports. It takes a special kind of bumbling incompetence to fail and stumble so heartily while doing something that Americans and foreign observers all agree needed to be done. But that is rapidly becoming the Biden administration's stock in trade. They moved on banning Russian oil nearly two weeks late, and rather than couple the prohibition with a ramp-up of domestic oil transportation and production, they're opting to replace American and Russian oil with oil from an autocratic dictatorship that vocally hates everything for which America stands. I began this segment by saying that the United States should not be in business with Vladimir Putin's Russia. 
Well, I'm glad this president agrees. I'd hope it's also clear why the United States should not be in business with Nicolas Maduro's Venezuela. Pundits and celebrities are lashing out today against Florida's HB 1557, the parental rights in education bill that this week passed the Florida legislature and was signed into law by Governor Ron DeSantis. Critics call it the Don't Say Gay Bill. The leftist talking point is that this bill will prohibit teachers and school professionals from discussing same-sex attraction with students. And if this were true, I'd stand shoulder to shoulder with Democrats in opposition to the bill. Fortunately, that's not what the bill does. HB 1557 does nothing, repeat nothing, prohibiting teachers, counselors, or other professionals from talking with students about instances of Tommy as a crush on Timmy or Sandy as a crush on Sally. Any limited government conservative would agree with me that such issues are best left to the parents of students involved, and perhaps to the teacher should such feelings become a distraction in the classroom. What the bill does do is take action against a legitimate problem that has crept gradually into public school classrooms over the past few decades. You've likely heard recent stories of parents showing up at school board meetings, decrying particular books, appearing in school classrooms and libraries. Once again, the professional left has decried these parents as anti-gay, bigoted, prejudiced, or favoring censorship. But the reality is that these parents have been fighting the very same thing that Florida's HB 1557 fights, exposing children to pornography. There has long been a consensus in America that sexually explicit content should only be available to adults. That's not a controversial statement. Parents work hard, myself included, to let children be children for as long as possible. Teachers and school boards have traditionally been allies in that fight, and the preservation of childhood innocence was once a high-ranking virtue of our public school system. The internet changed all that. Where sexually explicit content was once behind the counter at a local newsstand and required showing a photo ID to purchase, today it's a tap away on every child's iPhone. According to Fight the New Drug, an anti-pornography organization, children as young as eight years old report having been exposed to pornography or sexually explicit material, and statistics show that by the end of the teen years, the experience of having seen explicit content is almost completely universal. The rise in accessible handheld technology happened to coincide with the successes of the gay rights movement. So it slipped under the radar when some of the LGBT-affirming literature that began to appear in school libraries and classrooms was far more explicit than comparable titles that reinforced opposite-sex attraction. Perhaps people were afraid to seem anti-gay. I can understand that. But the desire to not offend anybody stops being noble when you're throwing your children under the bus. That brings me to the actual controversial content of Florida's HB 1557. And I quote, Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards." End quote. In other words, don't formalize sexual attraction discussions for five- to eight-year-olds, and keep conversations above that at an age-appropriate level. Some on the left have falsely claimed that this is a solution in search of a problem, hoping to paint proponents of HB 1557 and concern parents as homophobic bigots. I leave you with a few examples of the controversial materials, and I will let you decide. A book about teens exploring their gender identity appeared on school district curricula in multiple states called Beyond Magenta by Susan Cooklin. 
The book explicitly describes boys performing oral sex on one another. A manga graphic novel titled A Girl on the Shore by Inio Asano appeared on multiple public school shelves. It explicitly shows the characters performing sex acts on one another. Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe has appeared in school curricula in multiple states. It describes sex acts between minors of the same sex. And finally, an illustrated storybook appeared in the children's section of, among other places, a Bentonville, Arkansas public school library titled The Hips on the Drag Queen Go Swish, Swish, Swish. We'll be right back. Former El Paso, Texas area congressman Robert Francis O'Rourke, more commonly known by his pandering nickname Beto, is the Democratic Party's nominee for governor of Texas. This after a failed Senate run against Ted Cruz and a failed presidential campaign. What it says about Mr. O'Rourke that he doesn't seem to care which office he seeks as long as he appears somewhere on the rungs of power I must leave to my listeners. However, Mr. O'Rourke himself isn't actually the newsmaker in this story. Rather, it's his campaign staff, and a reporter named Sarah Gonzalez, who works for conservative media outlet Blaze Media. Mr. O'Rourke was in Dallas this week for a campaign event. A number of attendees had their cell phones out, taking pictures and video. Having worked on several political campaigns myself, I can attest that this is not uncommon. Reporters and attendees alike will often want to record or photograph the candidate for either personal use or for news reporting purposes, in the unlikely event that a candidate actually makes some news at a campaign stop. While there are some campaign events that are intended to be more private, these events are usually obvious and feature signage that asks attendees not to take photos or video. Mr. O'Rourke's event in Dallas on Sunday was not such an event, as even the campaign itself released images on social media that showed numerous attendees with cell phones and cameras pointed at the candidate. This makes it all the more baffling that Ms. Gonzalez was singled out with a campaign staffer going as far as trying to grab the cell phone out of her hands. Speaking to the Daily Wire, Gonzalez claimed that she was never verbally asked to put her phone away. She claims she was subsequently, quote, manhandled by a Dallas police officer. Ms. Gonzalez's statement, released via Twitter, is as follows. Earlier today, I attended a Beto O'Rourke town hall. I started to record an interaction between Beto and a constituent while he was taking pictures. His staffer grabbed my phone and tried to pry it out of my hands. Then a DPD officer manhandled me unprovoked. Beto is not for Texas. I will be consulting my attorney and requesting body cam footage from DPD, she continued. There were people recording on their cell phones all afternoon. The police gave me no directive before manhandling me and almost pushing me down the stairs. Imagine what this man would allow if elected. That was the statement from Ms. Sarah Gonzalez of Blaze Media. We'll be right back. The Office of Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush is under fire from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development today, with HUD alleging mismanagement of $2 billion in taxpayer funds for relief in the wake of 2017's Hurricane Harvey. HUD alleges that Commissioner Bush's office denied requests from Houston and Harris County, Texas, on racial grounds, 
and that Bush directed the funds away from communities of color in favor of white majority communities. According to reporting by the Texas Tribune, Baytown, Galena Park, Jacinto City, and Pasadena, all smaller cities in Harris County, were awarded over $90.4 million combined of the $2 billion in initial federal funds. No requests from the city of Houston or from the Harris County government initially received funds. Since this initial outcry, Commissioner Bush has since called for Harris County to receive $750 million in federal funds. Bush remains in a hotly contested primary race for Texas Attorney General against indictment magnate Ken Paxton, the incumbent AG and former head lawyer of Lawyers for Trump. These disaster relief funds and their allocation are likely to become a political issue in the race for Texas Attorney General, as the Republican primary runoff between Bush and Paxton descends into a competition of whose scandals are more unbefitting for Texas's top lawyer. A.G. Paxton remains under indictment for felony securities fraud as well as under investigation for allegations of improper influence, abuse of office, and bribery. The latter three were brought to the attention of state agencies not by political opponents or even by law enforcement, but by Paxton's own staffers. Did Commissioner Bush actually discriminate on the basis of race? Seems unlikely to me, especially considering Bush is a Houston native. However, what does seem feasible, though still indefensible, is that Bush's office may have made a political calculus in distributing the hurricane relief funds. The cities of Baytown, Galena Park, Jacinto City, and Pasadena, the cities in Harris County that received initial funds, all broke for the Democrat in past several presidential elections, but only by percentages ranging in the mid-50s. Is it possible that the land commissioner's office directed the funds to swing districts? Maybe. This seems less far-fetched to me than a man of Hispanic descent intentionally using his influence to direct funds away from minority communities. In any event, the race for Texas Attorney General is certainly one to watch. In one corner, we see the heir of one of America's great political dynasties, the son of former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, grandson of the 41st President of the United States, and nephew of the 43rd President of the United States. Rising GOP star George P. Bush allegedly mismanaged disaster relief funds. In the other corner, we have, quote, strong conservative, incumbent Attorney General Ken Paxton, who remains under indictment or investigation for no fewer than four criminal charges, as well as a Texas State Bar investigation of professional misconduct. But, hey, he's a Trump loyalist, so he gets a free pass, right? I'm Michael Coyne. I'm signing off for now. Thank you for listening to Liberty Caller. This has been an episode of Liberty Caller with Michael Coyne. Copyright 2022.